Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm here today with Matt McFadgen, who's the youngest Australian to have ever reached the North Pole on foot and a polar adventurer. Uh, it's good to see you, Matt. Yeah, it's great to, <laughs> great to see you, Mike. We, uh, we met through our common friend James, yes. who I hope is listening to this podcast as well. And, uh, and I know it's a, num- a number of times we've, we've tried to meet up. You're a difficult man to pin down. You're usually in some exotic <laughs> place in the world. <laughs> yeah, often traveling a lot. <laughs> Barely surviving. And uh, I think often these days it's more dangerous surviving the airports at Orlando and Las Vegas than it is at I'd, the uh, I'd agree, actually. extreme yeah. North Pole. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so you started very young. Uh, so it's, it's lucky you're still around, I think. Yeah, I've definitely had a, um, a a few close calls, but yeah, it, it, from an adventure perspective, and I guess you know looked upon as what we do as as, as particularly from an endurance perspective, I did start really young, um, traditional sort of endurance athletes, and I by no stretch call myself an athlete. Um, it comes with age, experience, and that mental toughness. Right. But looking back on it, I'm really blessed that I was able to uh, to get into to the adventure world at such an early age because. Uh, it's something that I, well, I, I always go back. It's that the, na- the, the naivety of youth. At times, I looked back and thought, ah, it won't be that bad." And you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it was right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, talk about Murphy's Law and your first trip out. Uh, in fact, on the way back, mm-hmm. uh, you had that sort of defining, uh, yeah, I guess, moment of adventure. Can, can you tell us the story? So, we, myself, and four others had uh, spent two years planning a, a, a huge sailing expedition. So, taking a forty-three foot yacht. Um, very small boat, 13.3 metres from Sydney, Australia to Antarctica and back. And for those people who would know, that stretch of ocean underneath Australia, the Great Southern Ocean, is without a doubt the most remote, uh, treacherous and at times um, horrific, probably the word. <laughs> and it really, um, it showed, it, it is very beautiful though as well, but there is nothing out there. Uh, there's not a lot of shipping lanes, there's, there's really nothing. And they call it the the roaring 40s, the furious 50s, and the screaming 60s. Right. As the wind and the weather just, and we successfully made uh, landfall in Antarctica after around 28 days of sailing, and then had four beautiful days on land, and then turned the boat for home. And on the way back had a, uh, you know, a hurricane strength storm that, that, that basically we were about a thousand miles from uh, Sydney or from the bottom of Australia and about uh, about 800 miles from Antarctica. So the worst possible place that you could be. What kind of, what kind of boat was it? Was it a big icebreaker? Was no, it, a sail it was a sail, 43 foot uh, sailing, fiberglass sailing boat. Right. So again, in hindsight, probably something I wouldn't have go, go back down you, there in. You, you were in a toothpick with a sail. Yeah, really it was. <laughs> and that was for me at times when it, when it again, very, um, there are a lot of brilliant and great experiences, but you know, I remember one moment in particular of, of real clarity of being up on deck on my own uh, in this beautiful evening with the stars shining, a nice breeze, and just thinking to myself that we were this tiny dot in the vast darkness of this ocean. And it was a little frightening having that thought, but also very kind of like liberating, this whole idea that you're letting Mother Nature push you around the world and that you're, you're basically not in control. 
And you know that whole idea of not being in control for me um, really came into fruition. Um, as, I was, as you mentioned, you know, in a, on the return voyage, we, we got hit by a, a hurricane-strength storm, and we had uh, waves that built to you know 45, 50 feet, and, and and essentially the boat got rolled, and I got sort of washed overboard with. Uh, in the middle of the night. Yeah, 2 a.m. in the morning, and uh, not for long. I was in the water for maybe you know all of 30 seconds, and the boat the beautiful boat as I call it uh, brought itself back out like it was designed to do but that was really the catalyst and the start of, of, of what I sort of describe as a, as a fight for survival um, we spent the next you know three days basically in the midst of this storm and with no real idea if we would ever come out of it uh, and we, we, we probably in hindsight we probably shouldn't have we were very very lucky to, to escape with our lives and that for me was, uh, yeah, one of those sort of defining moments that, that as I look back on now and has given me such direction and, and a little bit, bit more clarity in what I want to do in life. How did you survive? What, what, what sort of happened in those 72 hours? So a variety of things happened. So we went from um, just fighting, doing everything we could, going up on deck, um, one of us each hour, every hour to steer the boat. Um, after that, that knockdown, as it's known, one of our crew members broke several of his ribs, um, so he was out of action. So it became four of us, and then it got so dangerous to a point there that we couldn't even go up on deck. So essentially, we we tied the wheel off, um, what's what's known as hove two, hoping to to wait out the storm, but uh, and basically sat down below and uh, in our own little worlds, just you know, with those those horrible thoughts that sort of happen in those those times and. Um, thinking about you know my family and thinking about my friends and 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 really for me for me personally and I, I can't you know talk for the others on board but for me it was a um it was the first time in two years I'd realized how at times selfish I'd been I'd been so driven to get this project off the ground and to to achieve it that I had little to no understanding that how my actions were potentially going to affect the most important people in my life and I had that moment out there when I thought to myself how dare I do this and I was potentially going to you know leave a, a, a family without a son and and it was it was quite it was quite challenging quite hard because you were t- 22 at the time right yeah 22 20 years of age when I signed up for the trip it took us two years to get off and yeah now at 22 I was very determined and, <laughs> and very selfish I think at times uh, how long did it take you to gear up and basically go and do something again it was interesting. I was potentially using that trip as, as, a, as a, a test for me. I, I had, since I was about 16, this dream of sailing solo nonstop around the world. And I vowed never to go back to sea uh, pretty much immediately after that trip. I ended up going back to sea probably uh, two years later, but my my shift in the adventure world uh, moved to the opposite end of the earth to the Arctic and my reasoning behind walking to the pole was that I was still technically at sea because I was out in the middle of the frozen Arctic Ocean but I knew because it was so cold there's no waves so that was that was my that was my thinking. So you developed a phobia for fifty foot waves. Yes, yes. You're okay with extreme cold and yeah, and still have that phobia to, the, to this day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I decided to go north, um, and uh, again, just you know, I think it does it comes with 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 youth. You know, it was only a year later. Um, I contacted uh, what I believe, or definitely Australia's number one polar adventurer, a guy by the name of Eric Phillips, and. 
I found his number in the phone book back in the day and I called him up in Tasmania and said... Was he listed under P for Polar Adventure? P for Polar Adventure, yeah. <laughs> and I essentially rang him and just said, <clears throat> I want to go to the North Pole, what do I need to do? And I, know, I, I, I think he probably hears you know, a lot of a lot of you know kids like me at the time that may have you know, have these dreams and probably thinks it's not going to follow through. But I was lucky enough that Eric and myself and another gentleman, Rob, um, a year later, um, walked to the pole, and and I've, I've been fortunate and blessed to go back uh, two other occasions um, as a as, an, as a co-leader and, and then finally a leader of my own my own uh, expedition out there. How different is the North Pole from? you know from the south completely different and that's the the interesting thing people believe that they're both just two big sheets of ice so the to be honest that that is actually what i thought yeah but well they obviously they are but they're vastly different so antarctica is a glacier so it's land covered in ice so it's stable the arctic is the most dynamic dangerous constantly changing environment because it's frozen ocean that melts and freezes melts and freezes as the seasons turn and the real interesting thing is that the the ice moves constantly, so you are never you are never stationary. And it's like those platform games that you played as a kid, right? Yeah, and well, and we had moments. I mean, moments I remember was you know we'd walk for you know twelve hours dragging uh, dragging a, a two hundred pound sled, and went forward 1.1 miles in twelve hmm. hours. But then when I slept that night in the tent, you'd drift six, seven, eight miles backwards. And so that, and it really is both a physical and mental game, but I would say 80% mental up there in the Arctic because just the ability to try and get yourself out of bed when you know you're going to have to walk for 15 hours just to remain where you currently are and it's 40 below zero. And having to do that day in, day out is is a really, really tough thing to do. But you know that that eventually the ice can't drift south or negative forever it's got to stop so those small incremental wins in the the worst moments is what sets you up for when the conditions change in your favor that you can accelerate and get there right so but it's hard i mean as you can imagine it's hard getting out of bed on a cold monday morning here in new york let alone you know <laughs> in a tent at minus 35 how do you how do you motivate yourself is it a lot of self talk there's a lot of self talk and i also think too i've always done these expeditions in a, in, a, in a team and one of the biggest components if not the biggest component is actually building the right team hmm. and I think you, you gain strength from the people around you and whether it's not whether it's a it's an ego thing which there's a lot of that out there in relation to I don't want to let others down hmm. so I'll get up and go but also to the experience of people I've always surrounded myself with really experienced leaders in the fields or the the, the environments that I've, I've been out in and being able to learn from the harsh times they've been through in the past and, and, and the knowledge that they've had and they've equipped me with always helped in those, in those really difficult moments. In far less stressful circumstances, we tend to build teams on functional basis. Like we, we look for people who've got a practical expertise. But when you're under extreme stress, do, do you notice um, that other parts of a, of a team actually are more important? Yeah, and it's definitely, there is definitely a technical component that we look for, but right. it's also that emotional intelligence is by far the, the biggest thing. And it's really interesting, you know, in the work that, that I do these days with organizations around the world, seeing a, a shift to that as well, that you can have the most technical, technically brilliant person at a role, but that doesn't mean in times of change and uncertainty that they're gonna be able to function at that highest level needed. Are you so, looking for emotional similarity or, or, or emotional, 
I guess, integration? M- more integration, I think. It's that how we complement each other well. So obviously people that bring unique experiences and, and skill sets to the, the, the team, but then also how is this team going to function as one? Hmm. And as you are saying earlier, if you think of, if you go to the, the, the sailing expedition, for instance, the boat was 43 feet in length, but the living quarters were essentially, you know, nine feet by six by six. We shared two beds between five people. Sounds like my Hong Kong apartment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and and essentially that, that's where you've got you know you've got five people living on limited sleep. You know we would sleep in shifts, and you and you, you that's what's known in the sailing world as hot bunk. So you wake someone up after three hours, and they get out, and you get in. So being able to function and 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 get along is probably the biggest thing, and also to know that there's going to be times where you're going to be frustrated and you're going to be, you know, at times angry or disappointed or whatever it may be with yourself and with the team. But to have that bigger picture thinking on what are we here to achieve and what's the, the years of preparation and hard work that have gone to getting us this far, far outweighs those 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 petty squabbles essentially that it can have. So big big essence on communication and how we how we communicate as a team, both from you know the leader down, us back to the leader, and particularly you know peer to peer, that that sort of cross sideways communication was always really important. And having those conversations up front, prior to, you, we'd rather have them test tried and tested in the safety and warmth of the <laughs> harbour, as they say, as opposed to out there when it's really going wrong. How do you how do you free engineers a high stressful environment in order to test a team? It's interesting. One of the things that we well, I have with the, the, the expeditions I've been on subsequently since the poll is really looking at this whole idea of resilience and have developed a, with, with the company I work with a, a resilience model that, we, that we, we talk to our clients about but we also use and one of them is, is this stress inoculation is actually putting yourself out of your comfort zone at a regular basis to, to build and, and, and push that level. Right. Um, so. I mean, it doesn't. Obviously, you can't simulate, and hopefully, never want to 50 foot waves or, or or negative drift. But you know, what are those areas in life, whether it be you know professionally or whether it be you know personally, where you can get yourself into, you know, and a, a classic example I'll, I'll give you, Mike, is something that is probably, believe it or not, one of the greatest fears I have. Not fears, but thing is this whole idea of like silence. I, I, I'm I'm that generation where I like to have something going on, whether it be listening to a podcast or voices or the whole idea of like just complete and utter silence on my own is something that doesn't appeal to me. But one of the things I've done recently uh, here in Brooklyn where I live, I, uh, with the, the sort of encouragement from my girlfriend, was went and did a, a float session in one of the float tanks where essentially <laughs> it is... an isolation chamber. It's an isolation chamber. It is a, 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 a just a little bit bigger than a coffin and you lay there in complete and utter silence and complete darkness with your own thoughts. And You realise she sent you there because she wanted silence. Yeah, right? exactly. Yes, yeah, totally, yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, so it was, it's, inc- it's always like that. Inc- it doesn't have to be the most extreme things in the world, but what are those little things that can... And for me, I, I wrote a piece about this, uh, about this experience and it wasn't a uh, spiritual, trippy, life-changing experience, but mm. what I did get from it was, you know, after about 20 minutes of, of being a little bit uncomfortable... I actually created stillness for myself, which is something I realized I don't ever do, and I actually avoid. And it was quite nice and relaxing, and it's something I'll probably go back and, I mean, I won't be there every week. And uh, I, I met a, 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 a guy in, the, in the, uh, the foyer who was doing an overnight sleep in one of the tanks. I was like, absolutely not, an hour's fine, but it was a nice way to do something that for me was a little bit out of my comfort zone. 
and to take the time to reflect on what I actually took from it. There are some organisations and certainly some leaders who believe their people are the most creative and most productive when they're in a crisis situation. So to some degree, they, they create a constant state of crisis in the organisation. So the company always feels like it's on war footing. Um, leaving aside whether that's a smart thing to do, if you actually want to engineer situations that allow your people to test their teams, how would you do it? So. Honestly, I think it's not essentially across the board that it can be done with everyone. Often when I work with senior leaders, what I'll talk to them about is, and particularly in this in this era that we're living in at the moment, we are in a state of you know of, of change uh, that you know, and it looks like it's the new norm and uncertainty and uncertainty, absolutely. But for me, it's more about and the encouragement and the consulting work I do with leaders is to get to know their teams a little bit more intimately and what, because you're right people there are people that thrive through that hmm. you know there are people that love adversity and change and challenge as as that's like that's what I'm here to do and there are people at the complete opposite ends of that spectrum where you know and we were chatting earlier a lot of the work I do now is based in neuroscience and there is a there's a little part in our brain known as the amygdala and it's an almond shape uh, on each side of our brain each hemisphere and when under high stress that fires up and it takes resources in from your neocortex, your your thinking brain. Hmm. So that's not a great state to be in. Because you revert to caveman, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's flight or fight. How do I get through this? What do I need to do to, to survive? And that high level thinking that we, we require, that organizations and teams require to be successful is just out the door. Hmm. So how do you actually alleviate that? And, you know, there's, a, there's a, some great research, you know, going into the moment, you know, talking about... Um, you know, regulating your emotions, this whole idea around acknowledge, label and reflect. Acknowledge what's happening. That, And this is something that I've actually put into play. And, and I was a little skeptical at the start, but that's the beauty of science. I think it's there to experiment. But this whole idea around saying, particularly if, you know, if you're feeling anxiety, let's say, to actually stop, pause and say it, either out loud or to, in your head saying, I'm feeling anxious. And by just labeling it, it starts to put resources away from the amygdala back to your neocortex. So you're saying it's possible to be in a high-stress environment and still be operating from your neocortex? Yeah, yeah. More so than... than it doesn't obviously doesn't revert all the way back, hmm. but it starts to, to pull resources away from the amygdala by just labelling it. Hmm. And then reflecting on times when you've felt like that before and actually got through it. And we've all got through those times. And the real interesting thing about this research piece is for leaders in particular, you can... You can do that to others by simply asking them the question, how are you feeling right now? So when you've got teams of people that are working under high stress, that are you know, in that state of, of, of uncertainty, by actually just asking somebody, Mike, you know, how are you feeling right now? And nine times out of 10, I'll go, you know what? I'm not gonna lie to you, I'm feeling really stressed. That regulates their, their emotions. Right. So unbeknownst to them actually having to do it themselves. So it's a, and, it's it, a, and it pulls them out of that fugue state. Absolutely. And it pulls them out of that, that heightened level of as you said, uncertainty and that you said that caveman, that reptilian brain as it's hmm. known, of survival. So it's possible that sometimes people that we think are high performers under stress are actually very selfish cavemen on the savannah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, potentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Killing everyone else around them just to yeah, get the just last to get cup through. of food. Yeah, right. and that's and that's essentially you know, our our brains haven't adapted to they haven't adapted to the modern workplace. You know, we are still at our best, essentially outside in motion in the midst of complex thought with others. And essentially, you know, we're often where we, we spend a lot of our time is indoors, under fluorescent lighting, um, 
you know, sitting down and really pulled in all different directions without that focus that we really we really like. So it's being able to you know have that information, that knowledge, and then how do we actually you know how do we actually uh, lead ourselves and lead our people through these times? One of the things you do, which I'm really fascinated about, is that you these days when you go on these adventure expeditions you're you're actually collecting footage and information um, not just for your stories but to run simulations mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know when I was a kid I loved those choose your own adventure books uh, although when I was reading them I'd always have like six fingers in the book because, <laughs> so I could have maximum optionality yeah. <laughs> about what my decision yep. was uh, but you actually run these simulations for companies yeah and that's essentially the company I work for Peak Teams um, started in Australia and now based uh, based here in the, in the United States started with a group of adventurers who um, high altitude mountaineer first descent skier and an african safari guide really started to look at what are the key leadership lessons or principles that they have used in these extreme environments being part of and leading teams and although on paper the adventure world and the corporate world seem vastly different you scratch the surface it's very very similar it's about you know that clear compelling goal and that direction that people need to go out and achieve potentially sometimes things that have never been done before yeah it's about then how do we then build the right team as we spoke about you know based on individual strengths but also that that complement each other well with great skill level but also that 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 emotional intelligence we spoke about and then finally it's going out and and executing on the goal in a changing dynamic environment where that goal will shift where the leadership structure could shift and we had experienced and 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 the founders of the company had experienced all these similarities in their adventure lives and we started bringing all the footage together and creating uh, an, an, an opportunity or a simulation, as you said, for an audience to go through a simulated mountain climb or a simulated sailing expedition or, or walking to the North Pole in the safety and the comfort of, of the boardroom <laughs> or the conference room, but essentially making critical decisions along the way that our teams had to make, but these decisions are really based in those key objectives for each client. All of our simulations are, are different in relation to the theme, but also different in what are the outcomes. And depending on what a client's brief would be, we'd say this is the simulation that fits really nicely here. The beauty of the simulation is it gets people emotionally connected to the story, and they end up having these conversations with their adventure hats on, but are really those critical, tough conversations in relation to their business. Right. You know, example, I always tell this story. One Early early on when I, I joined was running a, a mountain climbing simulation and I had a guy banging on the de- on the table saying to his colleague, saying, you always want to go that way. You went that way last week in a meeting with that client. <laughs> and it really is interesting because you get people that have these aha moments of like, I'm, I'm invested in this story and I'm invested in my team here achieving... I'm the negative drift in this organisation. Yeah, potentially, yeah. And then... And then and it's, ha- not, it's not the bear, it's actually Martha from HR. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it is, it's a really nice way for people to, uh, A, have those critical conversations, but also, too, one of the things that we find, you know, with our businesses is, is we're a 100% referral business and, and repeat business from leaders that potentially move teams or organisations. It's that shared experience as well. That they have, that they were on the, they were on a climbing team together three years ago or five years ago, and they still remember the team that they were with mm. as they climbed the mountain or they sailed around the world or whatever it may be. And it's this, again, that that shared experience layered in with those really core leadership 
lessons and the conversations makes it a really unique um, unique product and a unique experience because for people. Because although you're not physically there or you can't recreate those physical sense of danger, to some level the, the brain can't distinguish. Yes. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the, the, the whole idea around, you know, we, we as humans, we can't go out and experience everything there is in life. No. But one of the great learning tools we have is to live vicariously through others. And I think what makes us quite unique uh, at Peak Teams is 90% of the times, and we do this purposely, obviously, the, peop- the person presenting or, or facilitating the simulation is in the footage. Yeah. So there's that real of when we were here on the mountain. This is the this is what we were we were going through. So there's that real raw emotion that comes with it. What are some of the classic pitfalls that teams have made on these kinds of simulations? Like when you look at the decision tree, you know what are the counterintuitive things that they, that people tend to do that they probably wish they had? Yeah, there's always there's always a number of key ones that sort of stick out. I think you know there's in our, our mountain climbing one of our mountain climbing simulations. There's a there's a classic decision at the very end, and so they've been through this experience for quite a few hours, and it might have been integrated throughout two or three days of the conference, and they come back, and then it's summit stage. Hmm. And they get high up the mountain, and they get caught in a bottleneck. And the the decision tree, or the decision is there, do we wait and, and go up, and potentially the pros and cons are we could summit, but later in the day it's potential for avalanche and danger or do we retreat and we go back lick our wounds essentially and go again the next day right and people get even in the even sitting there in a in a hotel somewhere around the world they get what's known as summit fever they get we've come this far we're so damn close let's go for it and the way that that it plays out is unfortunately the team that goes up can't make it it's too dangerous and they miss their window the team that essentially decides to you know let's stop pause and retreat actually has the opportunity the next day to go and they make it. And I often see, like, I'd say 75% of teams in that situation go up. Do certain personality types tend to... Is it like the, the sales director wants to go? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> There's... um, And it's really interesting, too, and, and you know, whether it be... And you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, we do a lot of sales conferences, and the sales guys, you just know, they're gung-ho. Let's go for it. Um you get the L&D people that are a little bit more, you know, let's let's look at the bigger picture and what's what have we got here? But it's really also too, it's, it's an interesting to see the dynamics of people at the table. You know, one of the things we'll often do is we'll, in the, in the setup stage is they're asked to pick roles and we give them roles throughout the, the climbing team or the sailing team. And I often get the leader of, of the organization to just play an observation role. Hmm. And you see people that immediately take action and I'm going to do this and you're going to do this. Or, and so it's a really interesting just, just yeah. dynamics to see how people operate. There's another really, um, there's a really interesting decision in one of our sailing simulations where we, the first decision essentially is to go east or west. And we give the pros and cons. One's, one's more secure. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's not as dangerous. You're not in the open ocean. This is a, a sailing trip through the Pacific Northwest. But what we'll do is we'll get the entire group to make the decision as one group and give them no parameters. Just say, go for it. And it is absolute chaos sometimes. You might have you might have 50 to 100 people or even more in a room and you, if you give them no structure on how to make a decision, they'll often go to complete chaos before having this realization of, hang on, we need to put a decision-making model in place. Right. Or we need to uh, identify table leaders to then can come together. Which as, is ultimately the point of the exercise. Absolutely. And because then it, essentially, again, it comes down to if we, we take put the, the business hat back on, how often do we jump into these big decisions that we make as teams and organizations without, uh, whether it be a decision-making model in place or without consulting everybody that has a stake in it? 
and naturally you're going to have you know introverts that aren't going to speak up and their opinion is as important if not more i've seen in the past where you know some introverted people tend turn out to be actual sailors but for them to be the voice in the room when is, is quite frightening for them so they'll just kind of sit back but then eventually they'll come out and they'll say well yeah i've been sailing for 25 years and we definitely <laughs> should have gone like that and the people are like well why didn't you speak up right so it's this whole kind of like these moments of, of clarity that people have around a the why we're doing it um yeah. And also, too, then adding to their toolkit that they can actually walk out of there with some some real applicable uh, new skills and, and techniques almost immediately. Uh, you know, speaking of summit or retreat decisions, you faced this yourself just recently, didn't you, when you uh, attempted the Northwest Passage mm-hmm. in a rowboat? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds even just saying you hearing you say that it sounds ridiculous. So the two summers ago was my my last sort of big expedition, and myself and, and uh, a colleague of mine at Peak Teams and, and my best friend actually, we decided to attempt to become the first humans uh, in history to attempt to cross the Northwest Passage by human power. So uh, for the listeners that don't know, the Northwest Passage is a, is a famous stretch of water in the, in the Canadian Arctic that links um, the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans. And for, for centuries, it's been looked upon as um, this new trade route where uh, ships would have to, didn't have to go down and around Cape Horn, but it was always full of ice. And it was very, uh, very, very dangerous. In the last decade, with the, with the onset and the effects of climate change, it's tended to open up more uh, through the summer months. And so we decided to take this um, 12 and a half foot open rowboat that had a small sail on it, but it was completely open. There was no downstairs, there was no, no out of the elements. And uh, we attempted to, to cross about two and a half thousand miles. We, we made about three quarters of it in 42 days. Wow. And we, the last two days as we were rowing into the only exit point um, that we had at that moment was a place called Cambridge Bay. I remember the oars was like rowing through jello, that the ocean was starting to freeze and thicken around us. And we got in and, and uh, Cambridge Bay originally for us was going to be our like resupply place. And we basically, the Canadian Coast Guard said to us, we can't stop you going on, but we will be rescuing you in the next week if you continue. So we made that executive decision to, 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 to stop. And it was a really tough decision to make. Uh, it, well, it, on, on one, one hand, it was a really easy decision to make because I'd, I'd had a shower and I'd, I was in a, in a warm hotel room and it was thinking about having to go back out there. But also too, I mean, we'd invested two years of our life in this. We had some pretty major sponsors on board and essentially on paper, we, we failed in what we'd, we'd uh, you know, set out to achieve. In hindsight, now it was the right decision to make, and there was, you know, there was no way that we'd ever have gone any further than, you know, a day or two out there. But it was interesting, just the whole perception of whether we failed or not from a personal perspective. And it was myself and and, and Cameron was uh, was my friend's name who accompanied me. We had two completely different outlooks on that journey. I saw it as the journey and the experience that we had, that growth both personally um, and also as as a team. And for me, that ticked the boxes, that although we didn't make the endpoint success, that there'd been so many great opportunities and learnings throughout that it was a successful trip. Well, Cameron was the opposite. He was, he was like upset and, and very, very um, down on himself and, and myself for, for failing. So there was this whole perception of, of failure and, 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 and what can we learn from failure? Because I think, you know, in, in looking at that, we're never going to be successful 100% of the time. It's just a given. 
So it's this idea of, of not painting that sort of Pollyanna-ish kind of life that we're always going to be successful if, if we're not, we don't work hard enough or we didn't, you know, prepare enough. <laughs> but looking at, so, you know, as I'm calling it these days, is the beauty of failure. And how can we take those lessons from failure, A, so we don't fail again in whatever that is, but also that there are key lessons, I think, that can, can help us in whatever it is we do in life, personally and professionally. So, but that for me was, um, you know, you were asking earlier to describe like an, an average day out there was, uh, was about 12 or, or so hours of rowing or, or sailing in, and just cold, like really cold and wet to the point where your hands would ache and freeze. And it was actually interesting when we would row we would we would swap we'd do an hour on an hour off and you wanted the hour on because you, you'd actually feel warm while you were rowing when you were sitting <laughs> steering you actually were in pain but the that was the physical side of it the worst probably the worst part was the mental anguish that came then in the evening so we were able to we'd pull the boat ashore and it would take us about three hours to get the boat out of the water get everything set up but you are now entering into the most heavily populated part of the planet for polar bears and so we would have to have, be constantly um, armed with 12 gauge shotguns both Cameron and I so you live the revenant every night absolutely <laughs> and then set trip wires up around your campsite with blank shotgun shells so when the, if when and if the bears would penetrate to come at you the shotgun shell would wake you up but also hopefully scare the bear so for the first two weeks I was just on this complete heightened state of just alertness, so I wasn't sleeping and then having to go and row. And I can remember at one point, just like, was so, just so shattered at the end of one day. And I remember just saying, I've just got to sleep tonight. And you know what, if I'm gonna, if a bear's gonna get me, a bear's gonna get me. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm glad you decided to take that hot shower and survive um, and for being a guest today on the show. Thanks, Mike. It was it's great a pleasure. to see you. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, mate. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.